Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This podcast explores themes of murder and rape. Listener discretion is advised. The words of Jeffrey Dahmer are voiced by an actor. Dahmer is serving 15 consecutive life sentences for the murders of 17 males. The most prolific slayer in the history of the state of Wisconsin. From 1978 to 1991, Jeffrey Dahmer murdered 17 men and boys. He cannibalized some of his victims, dismembered their bodies, and preyed on the vulnerable, becoming one of the most depraved serial killers in American history. But what is the real story of this most unlikely of killers? And could this ever happen again? I'm criminal psychologist Dr. Michelle Ward, and this is season four of Mind of a Monster, Jeffrey Dahmer, episode six, The Trial. It's summer 1991, and the eyes of the world are on the city of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where a 31-year-old man is in police custody after multiple body parts have been found in his apartment. But he is not the only story. Questions are being raised about how such a man could be unseen by authorities for so many years. And debate quickly focuses on one incident in particular. The circumstances of Conorak Synthesymphone's death the 14-year-old boy who the police had returned to Jeffrey Dahmer's apartment after he was found staggering in the street. Why did two police officers ignore a vulnerable child? Why was the neighbor who raised the alarm patronized and ignored? It becomes a fuse that lights a fire of anger and frustration toward the police. E. Michael McCann was Milwaukee's district attorney. Part of the thing that caused such an uproar in the community a woman who was calling the police and saying, no, he's a young man, something's wrong here, check it. And they urged them, you know, check it out closer, his age and so on. Had they gone back to the apartment, by that time, Conorak was probably dead. Or they'd asked, well, where's his 
Where's his card, his date of birth, his wallet? We want to see that. And the thing would have been done. And when the community found out about that case, fairly or unfairly, they, there was a lot of strong feelings about the police. Those, the older officers were fired. Dennis Murphy was a lead detective on the Jeffrey Dahmer case. I want to know what he thinks. Why do you think it was that Dahmer's crimes went undetected by the police? Because he planned everything and he was alone. He had control of everything. He had control of his apartment. He had control when he'd go into a bar and he'd pick out who he wanted. He would make sure he had control over it, over the situation. You take a cab, you have him drop him off a block away. Do you think some of his personal characteristics, like being white, mild-mannered, he was definitely clever in the way he talked to police, do you think that helped him in these situations he'd get into? No, I don't think so. I find it hard to agree with Dennis here. I believe the way Dahmer is seen and presents himself is precisely why he was able to go undetected for so long. And the racial dimensions to this case have many layers. Not only are the police accused of negligence, but as the identities of Jeffrey Dahmer's victims become known, the public finds it impossible to ignore the fact that he had been preying predominantly on young men and boys of color. Of his 17 victims, only three are white. He's labeled a racist killer. While tensions rumble on, Jeffrey Dahmer is interviewed extensively by police, FBI, and psychiatrists and the scale of his disturbed mind begins to emerge. He tells them that he had an ambition to create a shrine of skulls. I uh, was reading a lot of literature on it and uh, wondering whether it was possible to gain even more power through rituals and stuff. That's why I had the altars set up and everything uh, with painted skulls. And he explains precisely how he cooked and consumed his victim's body parts. It started out as experimentation. Uh, made me feel like they were more a part of me. Uh, on the stove, uh, on the skillet. Uh, just like you prepare a regular piece of meat. They'd be uh, cut into, you know, sizes that were small enough to eat. Uh, hearts, liver, uh, thigh meat, biceps, biceps. Uh, I don't know how you describe it. You've had filet mignon, haven't you? Uh, very tender. Despite his confession, the lack of evidence means Dahmer will not be charged for the murder of Stephen Toomey, his second victim. So, the case in Wisconsin rests on the 15 other murders he committed in Milwaukee. On January 13, 1992, he formally pleads guilty. But there is a huge caveat. He claims to have been insane when killing his victims. It will go to trial, not to determine his guilt, but to determine whether Jeffrey Dahmer was insane, and an insanity verdict would carry a much lighter sentence. 
is Jeffrey Dahmer trying to slip through the cracks again? It is a case like no other, and both the prosecution and the defense build their arguments. With so many families bereaved, the stakes are incredibly high. The defense will try to prove Jeffrey Dahmer has a mental disorder that rendered him legally insane at the time he committed his crimes. E. Michael McCann explains the definition. The test in Wisconsin, whether due to mental disease or defect, the defendant lacked substantial capacity either to appreciate the wrongfulness of his conduct or to comply his conduct with the law. Our law requires that you can't control yourself, basically, that's the defense. There was very little disparity between the assessments by the prosecution and the defense, except on that issue. They were drawn almost down the line. He, you know, he, that he was a necrophiliac, that he was an alcoholic, that he was not psychotic. Only one doctor for the defense said psychotic. No others, the prosecution, the defense, the court, all said he was not psychotic. Uh, and the issue focused on our, our law was, did he appreciate that it was wrong? They all said yes. He, the issue is, could he control himself? That's the case boiled down to that. Dahmer's family hires Jerry Boyle to be his defense attorney. But with the burden of proof on the defense, he needs a respected authority to argue their case. Enter Dr. Fred Berlin. How did you become involved in the Jeffrey Dahmer case? The Dahmer case got a tremendous amount of notoriety, so I'd actually heard about it on television, was hearing about it, just thought I'd be another person who was uh, reading and watching television and learning, and then I get a call from an attorney, Jerry Boyle, identifies himself as a, a lawyer for uh, Mr. Dahmer and wants to know if I'd be willing to meet with him and discuss the case, and uh, I agreed I would do that, and um, so we met, he talked with me. After he talked with me, he decided he wanted me to become involved. Uh, my role in the Dahmer case was one of uh, evaluating him uh, as a forensic psychiatrist uh, uh, with a jury that needed to ultimately decide uh, questions of criminal responsibility. A strange part of all of this is when I went to the police office uh, to um, review uh, various documents, I remember looking at the picture of when his refrigerator door had been opened and staring out of that refrigerator door was a severed human head. And I was, you know, seeing all sorts of other gory stuff. And then I walk out of the police station at the end of that day. It's a bright, sunny day. It's very pleasant. People are out walking around, enjoying life. And I felt like I just left a Fellini movie, as though I'd left some horror movie, and now I'm out in real life. Except that I wasn't leaving a horror movie. I was leaving a real-life horror, and, and that just, just struck me. As district attorney, E. Michael McCann leads the prosecution himself. Can you describe the build-up to the trial? The judge called in all the people and says, there's not going to be a circus here. This is going to be a very well-tightly-controlled, ruled security in the courtroom. They did a very good job, no interviews with the press. The victims were all assigned seats. You know, it was very thoroughly mapped out, and uh, I n did not read one criticism of the conduct of the case, how the courtroom was. Rita Isbell, whose brother Earl had been murdered by Jeffrey Dahmer, is there too. The trial was like a circus. It was really disrespectful, including the judge himself. He was sitting in that chair sleeping. I was so pissed. I was more pissed during the courts than I was what had really happened. 
they had reserved seat for for uh, Dahmer's parents. And with us, we had first come, first serve. We couldn't show no emotions. And Dahmer's attorneys kept trying to say that he was out of control and he was mental when all this happened. You know, his defense team speaking up on him. So I'm like, BS. You got to be in a lot of control to do the shit he was doing. You know what I'm saying? What was it like for you to be in that room with him? Michelle, I said, I always grew up around that Jeffrey Dahmer spirit. It was just that Jeffrey Dahmer himself was the icing on the cake. I knew evil right away when I saw it. I, I recognized it. I did. Evil was in my home. I'm not going to hide it. I'm not going to protect any family members. The media was there right from the beginning. What was that like? The local media here needs to be shut down. They really do. They came to my house and asked me all those questions. And it was some kind of crazy. My children were young then. I still had to maintain my life, take care of my children, deal with my mother and the world. Annie Schwartz had been the first journalist on the scene when the discoveries at Dahmer's apartment were made. She is one of many journalists to follow the trial. The thing that was so exciting to us as journalists was the very first time we were going to see Dahmer, like in person. And that was his initial appearance when he first appeared in court. And we were all sitting there. I was in the jury box because they had to figure out, like, what are we going to, you know, have the courtroom look like? Court TV had decided that this was going to be one of their first televised trials. People learned how to see behind the curtain, and they learned by watching this trial all of the backstory. Because that's what you get when you watch a trial, is you get all the backstory. You get to not only hear how Jeffrey Dahmer became who he was, you get to hear all of the psychology. You get to hear all of the the ways that the, the police were able to figure certain things out. Now, the Jeffrey Dahmer case was not a whodunit. No one knew there was a serial killer operating in the city. And when he was caught, there was no, gee, I wonder who did this. I wonder if he's going to be found guilty. But the trial was... It was really a strange time because Milwaukee was just this this relatively quiet Midwestern city. Nothing really ever happens. Uh, and all of a sudden, a city that was minding its own business became the center of the universe. And that's what happened in Milwaukee, that all the eyes were on us. All the eyes were on our police department. All the eyes were on our racial dirty laundry. All of the eyes of the world were on our city and, and not in a great tourism kind of way. So we were kind of dealing with that as well as covering this trial. We were also dealing with the fact that the media from out of town were examining our city to see how all of this could have happened. And it was kind of offensive to a lot of us because we were like, wait a minute, it's not our fault. What did Dahmer seem like in court? Did it seem as though he were insane? What I learned covering the trial was that this trial was going to be about the legal definition of insanity. This was about the criminal insanity of Jeffrey Dahmer and whether or not he, he actually, his actions fit that definition. This was a really 
nuanced thing because we look at Charles Manson, right? He's got the swastika carved in his head. He's got those eyes that are just, you know, out there. The hair is kind of flying all over the place. And we say that man is an insane person. But you look at Jeffrey Dahmer and you look at someone who is very quiet. He's almost demure. He doesn't look you in the eye. He absolutely does not answer questions with any more than a monosyllabic answer to anything. Jeffrey Dahmer's father, Lionel, was at the trial, too. In 2020, he shared his recollections with the Mind of a Monster team. What was it like? It was horrible. It was terrible. It was a terrible situation. All we could do was sit there and listen to the the, the prosecuting attorney and, the, and Boyle, the defense attorney. It was just horrendous. It was just bad, really bad. Uh, hurt badly. He didn't exhibit any uh, emotion. He just sat with Boyle and his assistants and uh, just listened. We didn't really uh, get a chance to talk to him. As the trial gets underway, it is a tense time for all involved. I return to E. Michael McCann. Were you nervous? I mean, was there any part of you that thought you might not have gotten the verdict you wanted? If you aren't nervous, you're not a good trial lawyer. You know, that's, you gotta have both. You gotta have that intensity, that preparation, knowing anything can go wrong and, and, and you better be ready. Yeah, I, I always wanna prepare a trial. I'm, I'm intense on it and on edge and I'm not sleeping well at night and thinking about what'll come up tomorrow. And, there's no such thing as a simple trial. I think even if you're serious, you know, even disorderly conduct, you're take it seriously. But yeah, I was under stress, of course. What was there in terms of an evidence trail? His, his statement, of course, was the most powerful thing against him, obviously. But these disappearances and, and, and um, uh, his, you know, the, the drugs in his apartment when he was arrested, there was different people's body parts in there. Was there ever a moment when you worried you might not have the jury on your side? Uh, Jerry Boyle, who was the defense attorney, is a very capable lawyer, and his best at work is done before a jury. He's from Chicago, a level-headed guy, very likable. When he started arguing that Dahmer was like a train out of control, roaring down the tracks and couldn't stop himself, that's an interesting argument. And I thought, well, this, they're hearing a hell of a good argument here. One of my strongest arguments was, when, with the young man that he had started to drill a hole and the guy got out on the street, the police arrived in the ambulance, Dahmer persuades those two officers. He's under tremendous stress. He tells them he's a, this is a lover, a sexual lover, uh, and goes back to the apartment with them. Here, here they have in front of him, he's in the process almost of killing someone. He's got a dead body in the next room. He's got two officers there questioning him. This isn't a madman. This is a very smart, capable, effective guy that knows what he's doing. He doesn't break down in front of two cops. Fred Berlin. But, you know, I, I look at this as a physician, and we're talking about a, a man who's having recurrent urges to have sex with dead bodies. He's thinking that he can create zombies by drilling holes in the heads of people, and they'll keep him company. He's thinking he can build a temple out of the sacred remains of the victims of people he's killed, and a devil may, or some force may reveal themselves. He's taking a skull to work with him, a human skull, to keep him company. 
In any other setting, would anybody have said, this is a person of sound mind who doesn't have a mental disorder? Proceedings take two weeks, which see police, psychiatrists, witnesses, and survivors like Tracy Edwards making testimonies to the court. On February 14th, 1992, the defense and the prosecution make their closing arguments. Remember, this is a trial to determine whether Jeffrey Dahmer was sane while committing the murders. The defense reiterates its argument that Dahmer's behavior was out of his own control and rooted in a mental disorder. The prosecution argues that he was fully in control and sane. The jurors convene, and the next day, the verdict comes in. The jury was asked, at the time of committing each of the 15 Milwaukee murders, did the defendant have a mental disease? Their answer is no. Of the 12 jurors, only two said he had some illness, and none of them agreed that knocked out his ability to control himself. He was no more insane. That he was, he was quite the contrary, a very well-organized, well-organized, clever, smart, savage, brutal, intentional killer. And justice was done to him. Before sentencing, the families of the victims are given the opportunity to make statements. E. Michael McCann. We have what we call victim elocution in Wisconsin. The victims have a right before sentencing to take the podium and to say, this is what I think should get, five years, 10 years on. Well, we told each family they could do that. Each one select someone to be your spokesman. Well, the last lady that spoke, obviously strong recommendations, strong penalties. This young lady came angry, started, and then turned and started across the room at Dahmer. I'm mad. This is how you act when you are out of control. Just why I hate you, motherfucker! I hate you! This is out of control! It is an utterly explosive moment in the proceedings. She shouts out in righteous rage at Dahmer, and then she marches toward the killer. The young lady is Rita Isbell. Rita, tell me about that moment. I don't know if you planned for that or... No, how can you? You don't know how to plan for stuff like that. Okay, they, they made me go last, first of all. After everybody else got up there and said what they were gonna say, that pissed me off because why would you call this man Mr. Mr. Anybody after what he did? to your love was, and then he didn't leave. He didn't leave us with no body parts. He just left us with pieces. <laughs> you get up there and say, Mr. Dahmer. I said, this is not real. This is a dream. I can only imagine being a parent, how that would make me feel. Cause I keep telling everybody, I'm just a sibling. So I don't even know if I still would be living right now in my right mind or what if that had been my child. We in the same building together. And, but you want me to compose myself. You want me to compose myself after looking in this man's face after what he did. And he's just sitting there like you don't face him. And you probably don't because I already know those were demons inside his body operating him like that. Human beings just don't be born and grow up that way. Wow. What did that finally feel like to get to yell at him? 
it didn't feel good because I didn't get to do what I wanted to do. Once I was up there, I said what I said. They were talking about him being out of control. And that's when I said, I'm going to show you or tell you what out of control is. So I went on to try to do that. But when I was looking in his face, I'm like, forget that. I hate your ass. I hate you. Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to touch him so bad. And I think it's crazy how the law protect murderers. Did you want to reach over and just kill him? No, I didn't want to reach over and kill him. No, I just wanted to start chopping him up right there. I really did want this to happen. Okay, you killed all your victims behind closed doors. I wanted you to be harmed in the public's eye. That's what I wanted. To E. Michael McCann, that moment exposed the truth of Jeffrey Dahmer. Dahmer doesn't react at all. He doesn't disdain her. He doesn't jump up to defend himself. He just sits there. There's Jeffrey. There's the real Jeffrey Dahmer, as cool as a cucumber, captured on, in a national team. Before judgment is passed, Jeffrey Dahmer addresses the court. Your Honor, it is over now. This has never been a case of trying to get free. I didn't ever want freedom. Frankly, I wanted death for myself. This was a case to tell the world that I did what I did. Not for reasons of hate. I hated no one. I knew I was sick or evil or both. But no matter what I did, I could not undo the terrible harm I have caused. My attempt to help identify the remains was the best that I could do. And that was hardly anything. I feel so bad for what I did to those poor families, and I understand their rightful hate. I should have stayed with God. I tried and failed and created a holocaust. Jeffrey Dahmer is sentenced to 957 years imprisonment for 15 murders. Dr. Fred Berlin, who was a witness for the defense, has misgivings. I have some thoughts about the, the jury. You know, the, the jury didn't even decide that he had a mental disorder. and. Again, you know, the families of the victims were there. There was no death penalty in Wisconsin. I, I think there was a sense that if he was sent to a, a psychiatric hospital rather than prison, that the families were going to feel that, 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 that justice hadn't been done. And then, no, they wouldn't have. So, uh, and yet the jury, they didn't get to the question of, of criminal responsibility. And in, in, in Wisconsin, it didn't have to be a unanimous verdict. But the majority of the jury said, that this was a person that didn't have a mental disease or defect. Again, I think they were trying to do what they felt the families would want to be done in a sense, jury nullification. I think that's completely understandable at a human level, but I don't think that anyone in any other setting looking at what Mr. Dahmer's done could possibly conclude that he was of sound mind. Dahmer seems like such a unique case, but the truth is there are people out there right now with very deviant fantasies. 
I want to know if there's anything we can do to prevent something like this from ever happening again. Dr. Fred Berlin. Right, we need to do a better job educating the public. We do so little in terms of crime prevention at the level of the given individual. In other words, you know, somebody's, uh, let's say a child's been sexually abused, we want to intervene and help, and that's really important, but that's picking up the pieces after the fact. When do we ever hear a public service announcement saying, if you're a, a young person, you're having troubling sexual feelings, you're worried this is going to cause you to hurt others, destroy your own life, please come in and let us help you before that happens. If you have a drug problem, there's public service announcements. Depression, there's public service announcements. Anorexia, there's public service announcements. But anything having to do with sex, and, and we, don't, we don't try to reach out, and yet we're all sexual beings. There's numbers of people whose sexual feelings and, and makeup is different from the norm. Some of them may desperately be in need of help, and yet we don't want to acknowledge it. We don't want to encourage them to come in and get assistance. We simply demonize, and until we educate the public better, maybe it's partly our fault for not doing that, things are not going to change in a more positive direction. Absolutely, and if we can do that, then we could have fewer victims. Yeah, and that is very relevant to Mr. Dahmer. I mean, again, who knows? But had he known there was a place he could call, had he heard something like that, certainly would have made it worse. And if there's some chance it would have made it better, we as a society should be demanding that we take that chance. A few months after he is sentenced in Wisconsin, justice is also served in Ohio when Dahmer is put on trial for the murder of Stephen Hicks. Nearly 14 years after claiming his life, Dahmer is found guilty. No parent should have to see pieces of their child on TV or in the newspapers we did. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. If you're looking for a little extra peace of mind, you might want to check out Simply Safe. Simply Safe was kind enough to send me a home protection system to try out, and I couldn't believe how easy it was to set up. 
Not only that, I'm kind of a gear nerd, and I was really impressed by how clear the camera was. I also love the smart lock keyless entry because there are a lot of things to remember each day, and my keys aren't always on that list, okay? Not only that, Simply Safe offers a 60-day money-back guarantee, and U.S. News & World Report awarded them the best home security systems of 2024. Simply Safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind, and I want you to have that too. Right now, get 20% off any new Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/mindofamonster. There's no safe like Simply Safe. For the family and friends of those slain by Jeffrey Dahmer, the impact is incalculable. This is the father of Dahmer's 15th victim, Jeremiah Weinberger. His being out in the street was dangerous and terrible. Once he's in jail, he's immaterial. The mother of Dahmer's 12th victim, Tony Hughes. You have to lay down with this, get up with this. You have to go each day with this, you know, birthdays, holidays and just plain memory. The mother of Matt Turner, Dahmer's 14th victim. You never think about it until he hit your child, you know, your only child. I returned to E. Michael McCann. Do you think there was any part of Jeffrey Dahmer that truly regretted what he had done? Let's go, let's juxtaposition the true words, regret and sorrow. A regret, of course, he'd been apprehended. His life, he'd not, not going to be in jail the rest of his life. So he certainly regretted it for his own self-interest. His ingrained lack of respect for human beings to kill a man who came, just came into your home that you just met a few hours before, who be, means no ill will to you at all. To kill that man without any aggravation, you're a heartless, murderous, cold-blooded killer. And I don't think cold-blooded killers feel sorrow. Do you have any lasting thoughts about the Jeffrey Dahmer case? People that get desires like that, you got to realize they're dangerous, they're destructive. You, you have to get help. You have to go tell a teacher, your parents, a priest, a, a minister, a rabbi, I'm having these terrible fantasies. Help me, what should I do? How do I deal with them? Because paraphilia is just, just it, it occupies you. I and mean, once it gets into you, boy, it, it really tears you up. It's tough. Less than a year after Dahmer is incarcerated, Annie Schwartz receives a bizarre phone call. My book was launching in June of 1992. And oftentimes, people who are involved in the production of the book get advanced copies to people involved in the case. And somehow, Jeffrey Dahmer was able to see some of the previews, some of the excerpts from my book. And he was upset. And he called me. Called me at the newsroom. Will you accept a collect call from an inmate at Columbia Correctional Institution? Jeff Dahmer, because you say your own name. And I thought, oh my gosh, is there no end to the pranking that these police officers will do with me? Because remember the very first night that I got the phone call from my source, the night that, that Jeffrey Dahmer was discovered, I wasn't clear that that wasn't a prank phone call. So I, I get this phone call in the newsroom and, and I, you know, hello. And he says, yeah, this is Jeff Dahmer. It wasn't, hey, Annie, sup. It was, 
This is Jeff Dahmer. And I, you know, I mean, I'm stunned. It's like you could have, it's like you shot me in the chest. Um, and I said, yes. And he said, I know your book's coming out. Want to make sure that you understand that the only person who's responsible for what I did is me. What he didn't like is that I had interviewed all these psychiatrists who pointed to his upbringing. Oddly, a man that murdered and then dismembered 17 people was upset and was protective about his family. But he was smart. And he knew that when people said, have you ever spoken with him? And I would say, yes. They would say, well, what did he say? And then I would, of course, carry that message. It's 1994, and Pastor Roy Ratcliffe, a minister in the Church of Christ based in Madison, Wisconsin, gets an unexpected request. I got a call from a, a fellow uh, minister who said that he'd gotten a call saying there's an inmate wanted to be baptized. And since I was closer to the uh, prison, would I go and, and do it? I said, well, I've never done that before, but sure. Uh, what's the prisoner's name? He says, well, you might want to sit down for this one. And it was Jeffrey Dahmer. Had you heard of him before then? Well, of course, I'd heard about Jeffrey Dahmer because he'd been in the news uh, and, and, and it'd been all over the television here, especially in Wisconsin. It was a big deal. So uh, my question then was, well, why does he want to be baptized? What does he think he's doing? What, what's, he, what's he hope to accomplish with all this? So those are the questions that I, that I had. What were your impressions of Jeffrey Dahmer when you first met him? I didn't quite know what to expect when I, when I first went to prison. I had seen movies, but I really didn't know what to expect. And so I was anticipating uh, seeing him behind a, a, a glass wall or talking on a, a, a telephone uh, or on a television or something of that nature. So I was quite surprised when they led me to a, a little room, 10 by 12 feet with a table and chair and had me sit down. Hmm, this is un unusual. And then a few minutes later, uh, Jeffrey Dahmer comes to the door uh, closes the door, shakes my hand, and sits down across from me. And, and I'm sitting there thinking, wow, I'm in a room all by myself with a man who's killed other people. I mean, that's kind of a, a moment there where you're kind of thinking, oh, what's going on here, you know? Uh, so then we begin talking, and, and uh, I said, well, why do you want to be baptized? And he starts talking to me. And I, I'm, at first of all, impressed with his uh, uh, courtesy and his uh, politeness, and he's... he's, he's uh, very respectful of me, and I'm a little bit surprised by that. I didn't quite know what to expect from someone who'd been in the news and who had been uh, who'd done some terrible things, and what what he was talking about, what he wanted to do. So it was very, it was much easier talking to him because he was so uh, respectful and, and so considerate and so forth of me. Uh, uh, and so uh, I got the impression that he was genuine. Uh, 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 these are concerns that really matter to him a great deal. And uh, as we continued to talk, I, I became even more and more convinced uh, of that. And I had this sense that he was opening his heart up to me, so that made it much easier for me to talk with him because I felt that he was being truly honest and, and open with me. A lot of people have asked questions about that because from a distance they don't know. Uh, they weren't there, so they can't really determine that, but that's how I uh, assessed the situation. And so I had the sense that he was uh, being uh, very genuine with me and very honest and, and very sincere about what he was talking about. So does that mean you trusted him? 
Eventually, uh, that would come to that point. Uh, at, at, when you first meet someone like that, it's, it's hard to really describe it as trust. Uh, he, he's asking me questions. I'm giving him answers. I ask him questions. He's giving me answers. I trust that his answers are tr honest and true. I mean, in that sense, there's a sense of trust. Uh, I don't know that having him babysit my children or, or, you know, take care of my property when I'm gone or something of that nature, as you would think of trust. Did he share anything with you about his crimes? Yes, uh, Jeff, Jeff admired his father very much and wanted to be a scientist like his father. And the lobotomies was an attempt on his part to do something scientific to try to keep people. He, he, uh, the point of the lobotomy was to keep the person alive and make them a servant of him. It, it, that was what it was all about. Of course, he, he didn't know how to do it right, and so it ended, ended up always killing them. But there was his effort to try to uh, somehow keep them alive and, and not kill them and and same time uh, establish the fact that he was he was being scientific. So he saw his father was a scientist and he wanted to be very much like his father in that sense. As time went on, there, there, he was killing more and more people and he wasn't doing a very good job of, of uh, putting things out of the way. And, and so in a very real sense, it was, it was like he was tripping over body parts uh, toward the end. Jeffrey Dahmer was baptized in prison in front of his family in May 1994. Did Jeffrey Dahmer seem remorseful? After a while, when we, after he'd been baptized a while, he then confided to me that he felt very remorseful for the things he had done. He felt very bad about the crimes he committed and said that in his opinion, he probably should have been put to death by the state for what he had done. To which I responded by saying, I agree, you probably should have been put to death by the state because what you did were, were crimes worthy of death. Now this is in the context of after he's become, after he's been baptized, after he's a Christian. So he says to me, well then if that's the case, am I now sinning against God by living? Annie Schwartz describes the situation for Dahmer in prison. Jeffrey Dahmer was in solitary confinement when he first went to Columbia Correctional Institution. And Jeffrey Dahmer told his lawyer, told Jerry Boyle, he said, once I join the general population, he's like, I'm not going to live that long. They're going to kill me. And Jerry Boyle believed it too. That once Dahmer joined the general population, he was not long for this world. He killed 17 men and boys, the majority of whom were men of color. Not a great guy to be in prison. But also, people were very superstitious about him. I mean, they thought he was evil. They thought maybe he was the devil. I mean, there was all that was going on too. Prosecuting attorney E. Michael McCann has a similar view. He must have known he was a target, uh, even because even when he was in the lockup in Milwaukee, some of the prisoners were, were you know, they thought he was a racist, obviously tell, giving him their own thoughts. So he must have known our, our prison system is disproportionately black. He must have known he was at risk. On July 4th, 1994, as Jeffrey Dahmer sits in the prison chapel, an inmate makes an attempt on his life with a razor blade hidden in a toothbrush. Dahmer receives only superficial wounds. Roy Ratcliffe. After the attack in uh, July by uh, uh, a Cuban who tried to kill him, I asked him how he got along with the other prisoners. He said he got along well with them. Uh, he didn't have any problem with any of them at all. That this fellow was an exception because uh, he wanted to be uh, sent back to Cuba, and the only way we could figure out how to do that would be by killing someone famous. So as far as I could tell, he seemed to think he got along very well with other prisoners. Annie Schwartz. 
Jeffrey Dahmer joined the general population, and sure enough, in November of 1994, Jeffrey Dahmer is assigned to clean a bathroom along with Jesse Anderson, who is another prisoner. Jesse Anderson was in prison for murdering his wife and having studied the Charles Stewart case in Boston, had initially told police, two black guys did it, was his quote. So he was not exactly a fan favorite inside prison either. So Jeffrey Dahmer and Jesse Anderson, arguably the two most high-risk prisoners in that institution, are together cleaning a staff bathroom. And they are unsupervised. There are cameras. Christopher Scarver, who is another inmate, he's in there for murder. For whatever reason, Christopher Scarver took a, a, a barbell from the weight, the weight area, went into the um, bathroom, found Jeffrey Dahmer and Jesse Anderson cleaning the bathroom, and beat them both to death. Dahmer and uh, this other inmate, uh, Jesse Anderson, were attacked uh, in a recreation area and that there was a great deal of blood. There is an irony to Dahmer's murder in that he was killed with the same weapon he used to kill his first victim, Stephen Hicks, over 15 years earlier. What's interesting about the crime scene is that it's clear that Jesse Anderson fought. The crime scene photos don't really look like Jeffrey Dahmer fought. There was blood spatter. There was a handprint on the wall that was Jeffrey Dahmer's handprint in blood. And the analysis of those crime scene photos from people that, that look at these things for a living has been it didn't really look like he put up much of a fight. At the time of his death, Roy Ratcliffe is probably the closest thing to a friend Jeffrey Dahmer has ever had. When Jeffrey was beaten to death in prison, when he was killed, were you sad? I was surprised to hear about it on, on the radio that he had been uh, uh, killed. And at first I thought they may, must have made a mistake. I was very sad because I, I felt like I'd lost a, a friend. The sister of Jeffrey Dahmer's 11th victim, Earl Lindsay, feels entirely differently. How did you feel when you first heard that he was killed in prison? And he was killed pretty brutally in the prison bathroom. It doesn't matter. You still had all your body parts. You was intact. What do you think the impact of all of this was on you personally? It stole my life. That's, that's the impact. I, it's like I don't have control over my life anymore. You, you do the damage control and walk away and leave me hanging. That's the impact. There will always be those with the potential to become serial killers. What changes with each and every case we investigate are the circumstances in which the killer flourishes. When it comes to Jeffrey Dahmer, a unique moment in time brought on by the AIDS pandemic, traditional ideas of what a vulnerable missing person should look like, and the persuasive power of a polite white man all served to create a cultural blind spot. As Annie Schwartz said back in episode four, the police antenna simply didn't go up. All but three of Jeffrey Dahmer's victims were reported missing. 
But opportunities were missed, witnesses and victims were ignored, and the dots were never connected. Jeffrey Dahmer didn't even serve three years of his 957-year sentence. He himself was dissected in death and cremated without his brain, which was preserved in a jar of formaldehyde at the Dane County Medical Examiner's Office in Madison. It had been intended to be donated to medical science. But after a fierce legal battle between Dahmer's mother and father, the brain was released and eventually cremated as well. To this day, researchers are still trying to understand the mind of this monster. Mind of a Monster, Jeffrey Dahmer, is produced by Arrow Media for ID. The executive producer for ID is Jessica Lowther. Arrow Media's producer is Rebecca Redil. Editor, Sirkin Nihat. Audio engineering by Mahoney Audio Post. Our line producer is Philippa Whittle. Our junior production manager is Jody Tanner Wild. Our production coordinator is Shannon Tunicliffe. And our assistant producer is Isabel Wilson. Our archive producer is Katia Lohm. Aero Media series producer is Gabrielle Nash, and executive producer is Stuart Pender. Jeffrey Dahmer is played by Andrew Broom. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Ward. You can follow our show wherever you get your podcasts, and we'd love it if you could take a second to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.